I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Welcome to the Ministry of Arts podcast, episode 208. Firstly, as ever, a big shout to our Patreon supporters, without whom this would not be able to be produced. And there will be a little message at the end to give you details how to become a Patreon supporter, if you wish to do so. Well, today we've got something very different and really quite unique. It's a group of life models called the East London Stripper Collective. And they do very much as it says on the tin. They are from East London, they are strippers, and there is plenty of them. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Stacey Clare, who is one of the founder members. This conversation with Stacey has been in the pipeline for some time. I think it was last summer when we was promoting the podcast at Roy's Art Fair. A friend of Stacey's come up to me and said, I've got someone you really need to speak to on your podcast. And man, she wasn't wrong. And as well as being a founding member of the East London Stripper Collective, Stacey is a speaker, author and activist for sex workers' rights. So as well as being a fun, interesting and insightful conversation, it was pretty much a lesson for me, as it will be for you, in the life of a sex worker. So during the life drawing class, these ladies will take to the floor or the pole wearing their, um, what should we say, their workwear. And I'm, and I'm not talking about a hat, high-vis and still toe cap boots. And then at a certain point, pause. Then the life drawing begins. It's the perfect crossover from one world to another, right? And like I said just now, this is the ideal lesson on discovering and understanding the journey and obstacles placed in front of sex workers and also what jobs come under that umbrella name of sex worker. So please come with me as I talk to speaker, author, activist and founding member of the East London Stripper Collective, Stacey Clare. So have you heard of National Ugly Mugs? It's a charity, um, it's set up, it's run by sex workers, I think it was established in 2016 or maybe 14, somewhere, some fairly recently. They've created a database of dodgy clients, so there is now a, basically oh, a screening wait, okay. service, so when you've got sex workers who are working independently, and they, they, a lot of that tends to all work online now, so you, you know get your clients online and then you can check their phone numbers against this database and if there's any red flags you can just block them wow so and the thing is that this is 
harm reduction in practice. This, these are the policies that sex workers are asking for, yeah. essentially, that have never been afforded us because you've just described a kind of community, uh, working class, uh, kind of, you know, in, in the moment, in the, yeah. it, it, I guess in the real world, people take care of each other, look out for each other yeah. in their own ways. And where sex workers have just been continuously failed over and over again by, um, you know, policy and legislation, they're just going, right, let's just do do our own thing. Yeah. And so National Ugly Mugs is turning out to be one of the most important, you know, kind of resources there even been, is available to sex workers right now. Would it be like up in Suffolk 10, 12 years ago when the guy was going around with a sex yeah. worker because they're yeah. murdering him? Yeah. If something happened in an area... Would the police be able to see this database to say like these are? So, the... as far as I know, the police actually do work with National oh, Ugly Mugs, um, or at least you know any any information about dangerous clients does get passed on to the police, as it's you know rightly should be. But historically, there has always been a, a postcode lottery in terms of the police's approach and their particular policing you know, each constabulary will have its own culture. Yeah. And even even now, it's still very well known that... Uh, so in Leeds, um, the, 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 the police are known for being really quite progressive about sex work, and they actually created a, a kind of amnesty, like a red-light district, a zone in, in Leeds, where workers were able to work sort of legally... Yeah but that the police would, you know, work with them and that so long as it was in a, you know, within this area, then the police were happy for it to go ahead. But, as you know, they were able to, and it was working. And so, you know, sex workers do then trust the police more because they're not going to get nicked and they will pass on information. But it's well known that in Sussex, it's the opposite. The police in Sussex are known for being extremely heavy-handed and looking for ways to prosecute sex workers that... Yeah. They come into well, contact that's, that's with. That's why a lot of them so forward, isn't it? Exactly. Because they didn't want to get in that position. Literally, yeah, literally. So and if you and and we are as as activists, as sex worker activists, we keep on having to point this out that if you criminalise this activity, you have created an illegal, a dangerous marketplace. A criminal marketplace is run by criminals. Yeah. Is coercive and violent. So. The only way to make it safer is to decriminalise it and then you create a, a, a culture where there's more visibility, more accountability. It's not a difficult thing to impress upon people that harm reduction is evidence-based. Yeah. But yet, when it comes to sex work, we just continually keep having this moralistic discussion about whether it's right or wrong or good or bad. Those are not progressive conversations. We're not moving forward. It's happening. It's happening yeah. whether you like it or not. The question is how safe do you want it to be? Making it, you know, criminalising sex work is just archaic and draconian. And, you know... I mean, there's, in in um, this instance, what, what I will say for anyone listening, we're mentioning the word sex worker. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, we're talking about what people might call escorts, prostitutes. Yeah. Um, the phrase sex worker doesn't just apply to those people, does no, it? No, exactly. The phrase sex work was coined in the 1980s, or actually in the 1970s, by an activist called Carol Lee, who just recently died a couple of days ago, a week, a week ago. Um, and she's sort of known as the kind of godmother of sex worker activism. Yeah. And her story was that she went to a feminist convention and she heard all these kind of different language and she felt really uncomfortable about people talking about the sex use industry. And she was like, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't relate. And she was a sex worker as well. But anyway, no, the, so the phrase sex work, it, it does, it, it encompasses or has since then come to mean uh, like an umbrella term to cover all kinds of things. So you've got um, stripping, you've got escorting, you've got street work, you've got brothel work, you've got porn, you've got your OnlyFans, digital sex work, you've even got your chat lines, phone lines. And would it cover lines. people that are just working in a sex shop? Well, it's a good question. There's a good, there's an argument, there's a kind of a discussion about, you know, how far, how broad does Only the term really... Only because they're working within the sex industry. So there is, I think, a fairly clear kind of boundary, which is people who perform sexual labour. Oh, okay. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So working in a sex shop is perhaps very close, or you could say that you're sort of, you know, very uh, kind of almost like an ally or it's sex work adjacent, but you're not technically selling a sexual service. You're a facilitator. So, you know, but I mean, there are those kind of fine lines. And then also the burlesque community are having this kind of internal conversation about whether what they do is former sex yeah, work it's, just, it's they're, they're kind of stripping is isn't it yeah. yeah um there's a whole there's a whole big there's a lot of conversations to have about it but the, but i uh, recently published a book this year called the ethical stripper and i go into this quite a bit in the book and um the fine lines or the distinctions drawn around sort of particularly around stripping were legally identified in a piece of legislation called the Policing and Crime Act 2009. So there was a proliferation of strip clubs, lap dancing clubs all opened up in the late 90s, early noughties. And then, you know, I guess quite a few people didn't like that. A law was passed where they actually identified what sexual entertainment is. And that is licensable now. So sexual entertainment is... Primarily, it's, I think, described uh, in the actual law as uh, activity which is solely or primarily for the sexual arousal of the audience, which can be an audience of one. And it doesn't even matter whether you're paid or not. It doesn't matter about... It's it's regardless of the exchange of money. So they basically identified the lap dance, right? Because... If you imagine a striptease on a stage with pole dancing, maybe you've got artistic expression, particularly burlesque, it's very beautiful, the costumes and all of that. And a lot of burlesque can be very funny. So if you mix in any of those kind of artistic, you know, elements to it, then you technically don't need a license. And that's why you've got Bethnal Green Working Mm. Men's Club who have, you know, people getting naked every bloody day of the week, whenever they want. But if you want to give someone a lap dance, which is arguably, you know, a sexualized performance, yeah, yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's basically to kind of turn someone on. That has become the licensable activity. And would the, the contact be a part of that as well? So physical contact. The, the, the local authorities across the land went absolutely balmy when they finally understood what was actually going on in a lap dancing club. And they and they've gone and they've gone so far the other way with the hyper surveillance, with the no touching. You're not allowed any CCTV in the. Oh, sorry, it's got to have all CCTV in the rooms, and it's just, it's got, it's got this. It's turned into this really weird sort of diluted, diluted, and we're very, we're very infantilized by that. We're very, it's very paternalistic. It's like, oh, but you can't be, can't be touching the women, and that's somehow seen as that's what makes us vulnerable yeah. and we're over here with our trade union going no that's not what yeah. makes us vulnerable like the fact that we're being exploited financially at work the fact that we've got no workers rights the fact that we've not been recognized as workers and we can't take our bosses to employment tribunal or fight for sick pay that that all of that makes us vulnerable yeah. not whether someone runs the finger up our yeah. thigh yeah. i mean you can slap him away if you don't like it or get him chucked out there is obviously I'm not saying that strip clubs are well run places they're not they're you know people are being exploited and they are having their boundaries pushed around but no one likes to talk about the market forces the ways that people are being pushed around by the material circumstances of being poor or being you know uh, precarious precarious worker you never know if you've got a job the next day so you might as well try and make as much money as you can that one night you might you know, push the boundaries or break the rules. Well, as I mentioned, and all of that, you it know... Was the, it was the early 90s when I was um, familiar with this area, being, like, putting security in the, in the nightclubs and that. At this point in time, strip clubs in the UK are some of the only technically legal safe spaces for sex workers to operate in. And that's important to recognise. The campaigns to get strip clubs shut down are based on, let's say, you know, the kind of uh, the outdated notions of um, 
objectifying women and, you know, least sort of looking at women like sort of pieces of meat. They're not wrong. I mean, I'm also a feminist, so I'm also of the opinion that, I, you know, if I had a daughter, I wouldn't want her to be raised to think that her only value in society is how good looking she is or, you know, how nice and arse she's got. But then also the thing that strippers continually, we, you know, we obviously we talk amongst ourselves, we experience empowerment in our job a lot because we are basically in control of ourselves as much as we can be on stage. But it's all to do with the conditions we're working yeah, in. Yeah. And that's really what we, you know, where what, what gave rise to the East London Strippers Collective. Um, the point of that whole, like, you know, founding that was to recognise the ways that we do feel strong but also to acknowledge the ways that we feel let down and we have got grievances about the industry and we have got grievances about being treated like shit and yeah. bad managers and bad clients and not being able to take action and not having really anyone to turn to because because the council aren't on our side and so sort of at a societal level there's a kind of undercurrent a kind of core belief that oh well you know you're a sex worker what do you expect you yeah. know you're kind of asking for it aren't you and what so is the east london stripper collective well, and when was it formed? We so the East London Strippers Collective at, at this point in time is a community interest company, a CIC, which is um, kind of somewhere between a company and charity. Yeah. But we've identified our comp uh, the community that we want to um, to benefit from the, the existence of the, comp uh, the company, which is strippers and sex workers in the UK, and what we're doing. Or what we're attempting to do is to support and empower sex workers to work in the arts, essentially, to, yeah. be, to be artists and to be recognised and acknowledged as the artists that we are and the creative expression of what we do. So we've done a lot of different things over the years, um, lots, like lots of different events. At one, for a while, for a few years, we were running our own sort of pop-up strip club nights, which were really fun. With the Strippers Collective, we've the most successful thing we've done um, has been a life drawing class that actually goes back to my time when I was a student. So I went to Glasgow School of Art. Well, if I can ask my first question. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, which is what brings us together today. Yeah. How would you explain what you do to, to someone that doesn't know your work? What's your arts background yeah wow, wow good question so basically i um i went to art school in glasgow and i got in more or less straight after school I was young I was 18 I, I spent my first two years just absolutely dicking around i did not know my ass from my elbow i was completely undisciplined you know i was i had ta i was a talented artist but i really just did not have direction and and that began to show because when you get to that level, it's all, you know, it's all well and good getting into art school and Glasgow is a very prestigious art school. But by the time I finished my second year, I just couldn't find my groove. I couldn't concentrate. So actually took a gap year, went traveling, cut about Europe, did too much drinking, <laughs> um, got myself into a few scrapes. Then decided I wanted to take another gap year, but I came back before I was ready to. Then I tried to do my third year, went on exchange to Paris, nice. but was totally unprepared for the level that, you know, what I was expected to kind of be at. Yeah. Completely flunked, basically dropped <laughs> out, right? Yeah. No, but I basically dropped out of my degree in my third year and that's when I started stripping. Was you already quite an extrovert yeah. before? Yeah, totally. I, I was already a performer. I was already performing my way through life. I have a lot of trauma in my background. And performing was my coping strategy. So yeah. I would basically just, you know, be another an character, ego, fit yeah. in. And I yeah. would, you know, I was a sort of shapeshifter. And also when I was 17, I remember going on, to, going on a trip to Amsterdam when I was 17 and going around the red light district going, bloody hell, they get paid to have sex. That sounds yeah. like a great idea. Like I genuinely was just not, I just didn't have any, my moral compass just, it wasn't like I'd had it drummed into me from a young age that there's certain things you can't do. And I think I just ha came at it from quite a kind of, quite naive, but just genuinely sort of like, oh, I can see, I could see myself doing that one day. 
I actually, when I was 19, I did my first ever audition in a strip club. And that's a funny story was I was on my uh, summer break from after I finished my first year. I was always skint and didn't even have had money. So I always was working part time, shitty jobs, minimum wage, cleaning bogs and serving coffees. I went on a night out spent my last tenner to get into this trip club and was watching the girl on stage going, I could do that. I could definitely do that. I could do that. And I got drunk and I was with my boyfriend and his pals at the time. And I was, and I went up to the, the bar tender and I was like, I want a job here. Brilliant. And they were like, uh, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I want a job here. And they was like, oh, well, the manager's in the night. This is in Glasgow. He goes, the manager's in tonight. You can go meet him. So I end up in the fucking manager's office saying, I want a job here, I like a job. Was and they boozed up? Bit boozed up, yeah. But they, he, the manager and his mate were like looking at me like, mm, who's this then? And they said, all right, so tell us a bit about yourself. So I'm an art student. <laughs> and, all right, very good. What Put else? yourself on the pedestal. What else, what else can you do? And I said, I can sing. And he said, well, sing us a song then. And oh, I you, you sat, ideal for that literally, night, I sat in a strip club's, Strip club boss's office, age 19, and I sang Mercedes Benz by Janis Joplin. And I finished, and he said, You've got the job. But the thing was, I was too calf cut, like, you know, I didn't have any of the gear with me. Also, I had these terrible white person dreadlocks, and I never used to shave my legs, and I was just total kind of hippie, you know, wild, uh, wild child. I went back and I did a lap dance. So I did what I thought what I thought was a lap dance, yeah. um, and they were like, "Yeah, you've got, you know, you 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 can do this, but you're gonna have to do something about that hair, and you need to get the shoes." And they wanted me to go and buy these plastic stripper shoes. You know, the stripper yeah, shoes yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. forty quid. I didn't have forty no, pounds. No, no. It's like I can't afford this. And then I also at that time I got word from a mate who knew a thing or two and said don't work in that place because it's dodgy and it was Good. and I found out years later that they take 50% of all the dancers earnings in that particular club yeah. 50% which is fucking outrageous but anyway I didn't then come back to stripping until I was 22 until it was the year I nearly dropped out of art school and by this time I think came back from Paris and I think I just went to a few pole dancing classes for a laugh just to kind of cheer myself up and the girl who was teaching I picked it up immediately I just you know got the tricks straight away and she said oh you could make a lot of money as a stripper I'm like really and she goes yeah and then finally one of my art school friends actually geezer called um, Rob Logan shout out to Rob Logan if you're listening I haven't seen you in a while painter his girlfriend at the time was a stripper and she got me an audition in one of the local clubs. And it was a revelation because I made £130 in my first night, which I had never made in a single yeah, day yeah. or, you know, whole full shifts. And it was a bit of a game changer. Um, and the thing was, I very rapidly worked myself out of debt. And bizarrely, because I actually then had a structure, like a workplace, where if I got too drunk, I wouldn't make any money. I actually learned very quickly that the more I stayed basically self-regulated, I would do better. And so it kind of brought me out of, I was, I consider myself to be quite vulnerable as a young person. And then as, you know, again, what I was saying that this is common knowledge among strippers, we experience a workplace to be one of the best places to learn how to establish your own boundaries and learn when your own limits are and actually become you know you you can grow you can grow as a person in in that sort of job but as long as you are supported as long as you do have so that would have been 2006 so just uh before the credit crunch i got back into art school uh finished my degree then when i got back to art school what i wanted to do was understand my job like I it ended up being my research specialism I I ended up specializing in performance arts and and I was really just went in deep to all the kind of you know the feminist theory and I went into the women's library and I immersed myself in all the literature I could read and I was reading Marquis de Sade and I was reading Susan Sontag and Georges Bataille and all this kind of 
the Sun- Susan Sontag's essay, The Pornographic Imagination, which I still think is one of the best texts texts to understand what it is that any of that is about, the hedonism, the loss of self, the ego death. It's an, it's an amazing work. So by the time I finished my degree show, I was... I built a working peep show with a coin machine and a two-way mirror and uh, was performing in it. And I was doing all these weird kind of characters and it was a little bit Sarah Lucas-y, but it was more, I think what it was, was I was honed in on this utter discomfort that the audience felt particularly around my work because I had, in my studio, I had pictures of me and tits and porn and dildos and it was all just too much while my neighboring you know there was a lady next door to me and all her work was about pomegranate seeds and (laughs) weaving and you know and I was like that's where the queue was forming um I I mean I don't know if there was a queue no one exactly beat down a path to my studio or anything but there was obviously a lot of kind of titillation. Yeah. People knew what the hell I was doing because it's sex, isn't it? And everyone... It, but, but I also experienced a lot of um, resistance. I mean, when I built my peep show, I had to go to the head of the fine art department and get their permission. I had to go through this whole... Um, what was it like the safeguarding process and they you know because they were they were concerned they thought that you know I was doing something really risky really triggering really uh difficult to present you know in a kind of fine art context but then there was other people going if you were in Berlin no one give a shit yeah. you're in Scotland but you are in, in Presbyterian where they have Life models coming in, so... So this leads me on to the next thing. Well, before I, before I move on to that, I'll finish with the final anecdote. When I finally built my degree show, one of my tutors actually walked out of it in disgust and then apologised later on. And it, there was just this kind of awareness that I was what I was doing was making stuff that made, generally, the people around me very uncomfortable... And I was trying to hone in on that precise discomfort almost as my, yeah, as yeah, the material. Yeah, yeah. That was the material that I wanted to make work about was this this discomfort around what what any of this is. So I don't know really how successful any of my work was, but there was one project I did, which was life modeling as a stripper, Not as a pole dancer. Yeah. So when I was in my... acceptable? Yeah, well, this was it, right? So, okay. So it's it's a mental blurred line, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So I I got to my third year and I realised that I hadn't done any drawing for quite a long time and I just wanted to draw. So I asked if I could attend some of the the life drawing classes, which were for the painters. And I was in a different department. I was in the environmental arts department, but... They were like, yeah, no problem. So I went along to some of these really intensive life drawing classes where the model would be moving around or, you know, you'd be trying to capture motion and all this. Yeah, exactly. So, and I was like, oh, we could put a pole up up in here. Get a stripper. And I just, whole concept just came to me and I was like, yeah, okay, we'll call it life drawing with a twist. And I approached the the tutor who was running the art classes at the time and he was one of the painting professors really proper old school stuffed up shirt pure puffed out chest kind of you know strutting around the art school uh building and i and i said i'd like to do, i'd like to do this as a project and he said yeah sure write a proposal and it just it just grew i basically i i got to use one of the rooms in the student union put up a poll which, by the way, I was teaching pole classes on Friday nights in the student okay. union, um, which were attended more by people from outside the art school than inside. Yeah. But they were, they, they were, this was in the early days when pole dancing was just sort of kind of still quite new and um, getting more popular. But that rattled a few cages as well, bloody hell. Um, anyway, I was. Yeah, put up a poll and then we filmed it. And then Stuart, I think was he called Stuart McKenzie? He he led the class. I modelled 
and I invited basically people from all over the, the, the art schools. So we had people from all dis- lots of disciplines. Some people were doing MAs, some people were doing fine art and they just came and drew. But then also a f- friend of mine filmed it all. So there was like the camera filming the yeah, people yeah. looking at me, <laughs> looking at drawings. Like goggle box. It was, yeah. And then the tutors looking at the, Uh, like and it was very and it was done as a very formal but it was just bang on and everyone was like yeah this is the best thing you've done yet and it was recontextualizing sex work historically sex workers have been used utilized and seen as muses you know Toulouse Lautrec Manet the, the, the Degas the ballet dancers that was known they were known as um you know that they were available for sexual services and it was just it was this big moment for kind of recontextualizing what I was doing as a sex worker recontextualized through an art like you know the fine art um from a fine arts framework. So then fast forward to 2011, 12. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I've moved to London by this point. I'm working in the White Horse Shoreditch, which is an old school strip pub yeah, yeah. where you'd go around with a pint glass and get your pound coins and we'd be up on stage. And we do lap dances as well. And anyway, the, that business was kind of a dying business in a way. It was sort of on its way out. And the credit crunch has happened by this point. Not just that, the crash, 2009. So 2011 and you know, 12. You remember a card reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I was working there and I approached the, the family. It was a family-run business. And there was the, um, the Bristow's. And it was run by a woman, Sue, Sue Bristow. And I said, could I use that room upstairs for a life drawing class? And she and I brought along the drawings from nice. the class yeah, yeah, yeah. from my art school days. And I brought them along and I showed her and I said, look, this is what I did before. If, you know, could we try it out here? And she went, she looked at the drawings. And she went, yeah, all right. I like those. Yeah, they're, they're nice. Okay. So she gave me the room and we just tested it out as a like a like an experiment. Yeah. And within six months every class was fully booked. I mean it was it was just so popular. Like that and then that was really what then gave rise to the collective. So we ran the life drawing class for about a year. I think it was just once a month for about all through two thousand and thirteen. And then in two thousand and fourteen, all the women that I worked with, there was a a real crowd of us at the White Horse. There was a real... It was one of the places where the camaraderie was strongest, um, mainly because the working conditions were actually some of the most generous, bizarrely. So the structure of a strip club is that we pay to work. We have to rent yeah, our pitch, yeah. a bit like taxi drivers. So there's lots Hairdresser, of... Yeah, a lot, lot, of, lot of other um, industries have a similar model. We would pay to work, but in the White Horse, it was very reasonable. You could always afford it. You'd never go home in debt, and yeah. you'd always go home with enough money. It was one of these places where you didn't have to sit around for two weeks waiting for a high roller to walk in. You'd actually just make enough you know, yeah. regular income. So it was, it, every, and it just had a much more relaxed vibe. 
And some of the best pole dancers in the country were working at the White Horse. I'm not being funny. Wait, so you... But Cheeky Love, Joy. Do you, have you, we might have ever heard of a stripper called Joe King? No, no. These are, um, I'm a doll. These are all stripper legends. Okay. Yeah. And like, some of them are still stripping today. Um, Is this on the pole or just stripping in general? It was on the pole mainly at the White Horse because it now... used to just be a pub with a stage. But then they brought in the lap dancing upstairs. So then guys, and, and I presume it was just girls. Yeah. Then girls are masters of yeah. movement on a pole. Yes. How were they when you asked them to stay still? Oh, Could amazing. They oh, they absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. We ran the life drawing class for a year and then we formed, I basically invited all these women that I've got to know to a dinner party. We had a private parties together and we went to it was a place called the common house in the bethnal green that was um uh, a kind of social center sort of social justice hub um where lots and lots of different groups and different sort of grassroots organizations used to use as a meeting house but it was actually funded by an organization called crosstalk anyway we had a dinner party and we all got together we cooked dinner for each other and then we sat around the table and we all just took it in turns and we all told our story of our first ever night or the first time we ever yeah, stripped yeah. and there was just this electricity there was this you know the power in the room was un, un, unquestionable yeah. and that was what the whole point of the collective was about trying to capture that collective power that energy of when we're together and there's no one getting in our way and there's no one trying to fuck with us, yeah, no one's yeah. trying to... When, the, when there's no one around taking the piss, when we're all just left left to our own devices, let's, you know, what could be possible? You know, there has been... Yeah, we've done some pretty amazing things. In 2015, we got offered a space. Um, there was a, a venue called the Red Gallery in Shoreditch. Mm, yeah. It was run by... Um, it's on Red Church Street, wasn't it? Was it on Red Street? It was on Great Eastern Street. Okay. It's gone now, um, it, but it was uh, it was there for years, and it was just one of these cool spaces that was temporary. Yeah. But you know, so ended up yeah. being like there for a long time. And Ernesto and Juan are two Scottish Chilean brothers who could sort of see what we were up to, and they were like. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. And they actually gave us the space for free for more or less two weeks they'd normally charge corporate hire fee of like a thousand pounds a day wow. so they they all they said was you just need to pay costs so you know pay for the cleaners yeah. bit towards the bills and what we did was we ran a basically a festival it was called the art of stripping and we put together an exhibition turned out that most of the women in this room when we had that original uh, dinner party Nearly all of us had an arts background. There was photographers, fine artists, costumers. You know, there was... We just were like, why don't we do an exhibition of our own work? Nice. So we did that. That was what formed it. It became, you know, that was the initial proposal. And then once we got given the space, it was like, oh, well, why don't we could do a film night? We could do a costume fair. We can do a, you know, it, it fell on Halloween. So the last party, the last closing night was a big Halloween party. And we had a stripper with a fucking snake <laughs> with a, a massive albino boa constrictor who did the, you know, the Salma Hayek performance from Dust Till Dawn. The, I mean, honestly, when I think about the... <laughs> there's been some really good shit like over the years we've done it just kind of really launched us into a bit of a kind of having you know a public profile and having you know a lot of people had heard of us by then sorry that's a really long answer your question was <laughs> how would you explain what you do to someone that didn't know your work essentially it is recontextualizing the art of stripping and using the word art. Yeah, it's literally, yeah, it's that. You know, we've always felt that we are visual artists, that what we do is an art form. But here's the kicker. It has taken me several more years to sort of catch up with the sex workers' rights side of things and to understand at a very kind of profound level that if you have... Let's say if we're reducing the stigma around sex work by making it cool, making it, you know, it's something that we should you can celebrate. Buy coals in Argos. Exactly, you know right? I mean? Yeah. So but the problem is is 
destigmatization without policy change equals gentrification. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually a fine line that we're walking where, you know, we're getting gigs. We, we've done a life drawing class at the Royal Academy of the Arts. We've done, just done one at the British Museum. We're getting, you know, we're breaking into spaces that have historically and politically not really allowed or accepted marginalised well, people. Wake, in the wake of what you're doing is acceptability for mm -hmm. those who wouldn't normally accept it. But this is important, right? Because what that means is we need acceptance for all sex workers, not just strippers, not just the ones who, can, who have the privilege to get up on a stage yeah. and put on a very expensive costume. We need to be able to empower the people who are working on the streets, yeah. the people who are working in the illegal spaces, the people who are being vulnerable, who, sorry, are vulnerable to being exploited. It's the policy change that will make a difference. It's like I was saying at the beginning, it's national ugly mugs. It's uh, East, the English Collective of Prostitutes. It's Crosstalk. These are the organisations that actually offer resources. Um, I've got a really good story for you that's relevant to this exact thing. When we were invited to do a life drawing class at the Royal Academy of the Arts, we were like, oh my God, wow, this is amazing. Like sex workers, obviously sex workers have been moving in elite spaces for centuries of course you know they used to be royal you know royal uh, consorts so i mean it's not like it's such a sort of um getting let in for the first time but it was more about we're actually being invited in as the as the protagonists as you know, not it's not a secret. We don't have to hide, we don't have to dress up, we don't have to be pretend that we're not sex workers. We can actually be sex workers yeah. and it can be visible. Yeah. So what we did was we we were, you know, telling them what we we're gonna do, okay, we're gonna bring a poll. And we had to obviously there was a lot of emails, a lot of back and forth, a lot of you know, conversation and logistics. And then the um the Royal Academy lot started getting really worried. They were, they were like, Oh, um, as we said, we're gonna put a poster up to explain, you know, it's over 18s only, no touching, all of that stuff that we normally say in our class because it's sort of funny and it's kind of bringing our culture. It's like, okay, yeah, you wouldn't touch yeah. in the club, like keep your hands hands off. But they were like, oh, uh, um, we were, they just started getting really jittery. And then at one point they wrote an email saying, um, we're going to need you to um, keep your underwear on. And we were like, what? They're like, yeah, we haven't got a... Turns out we haven't got a licence for nudity. And I'm like... <laughs> you, you what? <laughs> like, you the picture <laughs> <of> you, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it's like, you've had, you've had people taking their clothes off for hundreds of years yeah. in this exact room, but now you're saying because we're strippers, we need to keep our knickers on. I actually wrote back this... I just put them on blast. I just wrote them this email where I was like, listen. And I actually cut and paste the bit of the um, the Police and Crime Act that I just read out yeah, to you yeah, earlier yeah. on that like, no, this is the definition of sexual entertainment. This is what you need a license for. What we're doing, you don't need a license for. So shut up, yeah. basically. But yeah. then I also kind of gave them this big sort of just basically telling off, which was like, look, you know, w what we're doing is a celebration of our culture. We're not going to hide. We don't want to have to, um, you know, adjust to your yeah. discomfort levels. You, you, That's you the point. You don't want to on a lounge with a bunch of grapes. Literally, <laughs> exactly. We will be on the floor. We will have our legs spread open and we will be wearing high heels and it will be like something you'll, you'd have seen in a strip club yeah. and that's what we're going to do because that's what we are. And then, so, so what happens, I've not seen it myself, would it be a girl on a pole or sort of stripping on a stage or, or, or in, in front of a circle of people drawing or painting and then all of a sudden she would pause have you ever seen musical statues <laughs> yeah. it's that it's just okay. that it's basically dance and then hold still and then dance and then hold still and that sort of fills up about kind of the first third of the class and then we'll do longer poses and then also in our class we like to do this thing called up close and personal where we invite people from the audience to come and pose with the model and she'll sort of do like a lap dance position yeah 
so like maybe sit on their knee or maybe you know lean over them and that's it's fun and I think I think what we're doing is breaking down barriers so I think the people who come to our classes are people who would not normally dream of stepping foot in a strip club because there's a lot of fear there's a lot of fear I think I kind of at lots of different levels around class and politics and feminism people are just terrified that they might be participating in something exploitative yeah. in something that's you know it, it is um you know the, an industry that is exploiting women yeah it can be that but it can also be this like if we're if we're in charge you know we are in charge of our own classes we charge our own ticket prices we pay ourselves a decent wage we you know we we're we're doing what we do that it's the same labor that you would perform in a strip club. Yeah. That's the point. We are performing the same, more or less the same entertainment. The only thing that's missing is we're not having to go around from table to table, hustling, trying to, you know, sell yeah, yeah. VIP time, having to work hard, not ever knowing how much money we're going to make at the end of the night. You know, we pay what our... What would the VIP time be? Just that one person drawing you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Private model, <laughs> private session, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've actually had we've had artists approach our performers and say that you know they, 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 people have booked them to do private yeah. uh, painting sessions and I mean we've got at uh, the moment there's an artist called Suma Eric who's a Turkish um, artist who's currently got an exhibition at the Marques Gallery in um, Mayfair and there's a bunch of life drawing classes from our yeah. From our classes, bunch of strippers on the wall. I mean, I know there's a few artists on Instagram that um, draw over Zoom. Yeah. Draw the girls over Zoom, and um, many of those are, yeah. are strippers, and well, yeah. rather than just being their job being life model, although yeah, they're yeah. obviously life modelling at that yeah. time. Yeah. But they would wear stocking suspenders, bra, yeah, basketball, yeah. you know, whatever. I think we were honestly one of the first sort of life drawing classes to do something like genuinely risque before us there was dr sketchy and that was um burlesque life drawing that ran for years but i think we were the ones that were like oh let's you know bring in the elements of kind of eroticism yeah. and striptease that uh, life drawing as an industry is fascinating well you're bringing a group of people into a new world so you're mm. giving them a an entirely new experience because mm. there's there's no doubt male and female people who have participated in your events, who walk away, they may not go, like you said, they may mm. not go into a strip joint, mm. but now they've had that experience, they can go mm. and tell other people that it's yeah, yeah, not yeah. as bad. Word yeah. of mouth is the best advert, isn't it? You well, know? One, of the, one of the, I mean, I've, over the years, there's just been some really strong connections and friendships made with some of our you know, customers, yeah, regular yeah. customers. And one of my absolute favourites over the years is a lady in her... I think she's in her 60s now she's called Helen and she lives out in Kent and she would get the train all the way in and she just was such a big supporter you know and she and she her drawings were magnificent and her daughters I think it was her eldest daughter ended up doing a fine art degree and she brought her daughter to the class and you know she just always had this fantastic spirit and and you know the generous like the just you know, to think that there is like this kind of what mass societal core belief that sex workers are, you know, either bad women or victims, but almost, you know, the what's missing is the, the narratives, the complexity and the celebration, you know, like who's yeah. celebrating sex workers? That's Well, that's the difference. Only because the person is seeing them at that moment. Mm. Like if they were sitting here like you and I now, you were... I was going to say you're just a normal ass, so patronising. <laughs> no, but you, no, I had I no idea that, yeah. that you would be in the sex work industry. Absolutely. You know, you're not sitting here in yeah. your bra, knickers and suspenders, yeah. are you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have got a little bit of mascara on. <laughs> yeah, floozy. Well, I, I... <laughs> you know how to get someone going. <laughs> there is actually a bit in the book, yeah. I, again, I go into the book, into this, in my book, about the problem of confusing different kinds of objectification where if you see a depiction of a stripper or a sex worker or even a woman on a poster, on a billboard, 
on a screen. When someone is turned into a 2D image, that is objectification in yeah. its purest form, right? You've completely stripped away, you know, any of their personality, personality yeah. any of their humanity. You know, it's just, it's, you know, dehumanised. I think, and, and I've heard, um, there's a sex worker activist called Juno Mack who's written a brilliant, co-written a brilliant book with Molly Smith called Revolting Prostitutes that I really recommend. And Juno Mack has, was, there was an amazing exhibition at the ICA earlier this year called Decriminalised Futures, which if anyone didn't get to see, it was absolutely one of the best exhibitions I've ever seen. And as a sex worker, it was one of the most empowering things I've ever been involved in because it was an art exhibition curated by sex workers, which was, again, showing... It was like, we're, we're agents of our own narratives. We're in charge of our own stories. We are, you know, when we're in charge of how we want to be seen, the content is tr dramatically different. There was a lot of recordings, there was a lot of language, a lot of text in the exhibition. And Juno was recorded saying that some of the earliest anti-sex work feminism was actually in response to porn. It was in response to what some, a lot of women found quite disturbing and challenging about pornography, which was the 2D objectification yeah, yeah. the you know stripping away of you know the full facets of being a human and turning you into just you know a hot woman but that's spilled over into anti-sex worker um campaigns again to get strip clubs shut down or to you know try and criminalize other kinds of sex work but it's really really important to recognize that when i'm in a strip club I will go up to people and talk to them. I will get, I'm not just an image on a stage and I have the right to speak to them however I want to. I can swear at them, I can tell them to fuck off or I can flirt or I can be polite. I will obviously try and, you know, make money. So I'm going to perform that. Essentially, I'm going to perform a sexually, what is it? A sexually objectified sort of gender stereotype for money. But that's my choice. That's a performance that I'm willing to do and I get paid quite well for it. I can walk away from a customer yeah. at any point. You know, if I don't get paid, I'll just walk away. And and there's not a lot of acknowledgement that as well in sex work and in the sex industry that there is a humanity that customers also have a vulnerability. You know, men walk into strip clubs and it's the ones that are the loudest and the most sort of bullish that are usually the most insecure and vulnerable. Yeah. And we are, I mean, I would say sex workers are experts at finding the humanity, cutting through the bullshit and yeah. going, yeah, but what do you really just, you, you just really want a, a bit of attention, yeah, don't you? You, you want, want a bit of feminine. with people, you do get to, to sort of, see the bit of personality that, that absolutely isn't absolutely and people come to strip clubs for the suggestion of sex but they'll stay for the companionship they'll stay for the chat they'll stay yeah. for the the laughs at the bar and the you know mucking around and the friendship essentially because yeah. once the you know the, the thrill of the lap dance is out of the way it's like yeah well we're actually just people here having a drink yeah. you know it's a it's a it's a place space for grown-ups yeah yeah, you, you've been doing it for so long now. You're very much a professional. It's, it's part of your life, so it intertwines with your everyday life. Do you perform as you, or do you disconnect from your personality as a daytime? It's a good night time. It's a really good question. I mean, the... asked very badly. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a really good question, and there's not a simple answer. Um, because it's a journey, it's a, it's a process, it's not really one or the other. I figured out quite early on in my beginning days as a stripper that if I would sort of bowl in with stories about my family or, you know, what I was doing in my personal life, a lot of clients didn't necessarily want to hear it. They don't because manage, this is it, they just want, they kind of, they do come to a strip club because they do just want a fantasy woman who's yeah, got, course. you know, who's just there to, you know, titillate them. And Who that's... fancies them for that night. Exactly. And so I had to kind of quickly and work out. First. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, bless. Of course I felt for you. Yeah, of course I 
do. Of course I'm interested in what you're saying. But um, I had to work that out uh, quite quickly on that, you know, I had to limit how much of myself that I kind of showed. But then there's also, you've also then got some clients who want to know all that stuff. They want to know your real name and they want to know all of that. You know, what? who, who are you really? And they don't we're always actually walking a fine line actually we're navigating the expectations of our audience it's not very different from what a fine artist is doing trying to kind of second guess or understand how they're being read how they are being seen and i recently this just reminds me of this um there's a piece of research done recently that was um Vice magazine did a, a, a bit about it. Uh, Cardi B did a, a video where she came up with this phrase, a hoe never gets cold. <laughs> and then a bunch of scientists did a, some not very good science, no, I think. It was just... kind of quite basic. But they interviewed some women outside a nightclub and they asked them, like, you know, how do you perceive yourself to be seen by others? And, how, and you know, can you feel how cold you are? And there was a direct correlation between the ones who were more conscious of how they were seen externally were less in touch with their own internal states. And the ones who didn't really give a fuck about anyone else were like, oh, yeah, it's a bit cold tonight. I'm quite hungry, actually. So this is, again, it's a process. And I would like to have worked in an environment where I had support to understand these things, that had I had any decent training or had I had any forum or, you know, environment to discuss this stuff, to unpack it. I mean, we kind of do in a way, you know, the the, the, the changing room yeah, of a strip club yeah, is yeah. the space, is our safe well, space. Like you That's... That when you got into stripping, it was at one place in Glasgow and it was only because of your mates. Yeah. It's that little bit of yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. the industry, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. But when you were saying about persona and about some guys wanting to know the real you, yeah. it made me smile inside because when you were saying that um, Stacey Clare is your persona name. Yeah. I was going to go, what is your real name then? And, and it's, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. Is yeah. And I stopped myself yeah. because it's fuck all to do with me. Well, well, it's, I'm here to Claire, with Stacey Clare. Stacey, exactly. Stacey Clare is my, I guess, my public persona. This Scroobius is the, Pitt. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Who we exactly. were talking about earlier, should I say. Exactly. I mean... You know, I find it much easier to sit here and chat to you as Stacey Clare. And you'll have noticed that as soon as I... My brain went to, oh, yeah, real the, the real yeah. me. And I suddenly sort of started to shut down and yeah. go, oh, fuck. Uh, yeah. It, and, and that's, well, I suppose... I didn't like that one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> she was boring. She is a bit boring, to be honest. She is a bit... She's a total weirdo. Yeah. So does that describe what you do for someone that... Was... <laughs> That's it. Spent the entire the entire um, podcast just telling you what I do. No, I mean to, to add on to that, I've also um, as well as the Strippers Collective, I've also been a performer at the Fringe, Edinburgh Fringe. Oh yeah. For many years, I work with a, a Edinburgh-based um, retired stripper now who has gone on to be a burlesque performer and cabaret star. She put together a show called The Illicit Thrill, which is a late night comedy cabaret, which is a celebration of sleazy strip clubs, basically. It's very funny. It's very filthy. It's just really, really irreverent. And I was invited to join that cast, I think it was 2016. And then in 2018, me and Gypsy Charms, this is um, my work wife, uh, we did a little test. It was in the middle of the night. We uh, we've got friends who have a venue at the Fringe. Um, shout out to Bob Slayer and the Blunderbuss and um, Lucy Hopkins, two incredible performers who do, they do really amazing work at the Fringe. And I've put together a kind of really good business model for performers actually because the Fringe is notoriously exploitative yeah, and people right. go up there and <laughs> come out with you know in debt and stuff yeah Yeah. so they've kind of they're championing a sort of more um ethical kind of um business model as a production company the the heroes heroes of fringe heroes of comedy anyway and um they've got a yurt 
So they run, they open, put up a yurt in the middle of the city every year. And me and Gypsy took over the yurt at like two in the morning. And we made a, we made a sign out of cardboard and lipstick that just said, ask a stripper. And then me and her just rock up in stripper persona, full stripper outfits. By the way, my fringe, my comedy stripper characters, it's like, she's like this Dolly Bird from Stace, like... Dosey from Essex. Because nice. I actually am half Essex, so it's not cultural appropriation. <laughs> I've got a claim to the heritage. And is it Stacey you use for that name? So, well? Stacey is my comedy stripper character, yeah. essentially. And um, Stacey is like, and then I'll break character and start talking about workers' rights. Anyway, we put together a show called Ask a Stripper, which is essentially a one hour invitation for the audience to heckle us. Yeah. But because we between us, we've got like 30 years of stripping experience combined. So we strip off in the first five minutes of the show and then we're like, right, yeah, okay, done that bit now. So yeah, and we make ourselves vulnerable. Way, exactly. And, and the viewer can go, right, she's naked. Yeah, and now what? Yeah. Now she's now, a person. The, the and then we start well, talking. You don't see a naked woman. Exactly. No, but you listen to them and yeah. you understand that we've got a hell of a lot to say and we aren't just... We're not just here to be seen. Yeah. People don't realise. People look at me and they see tall, status blonde, white, very well-educated, very well-spoken. But I come from... Oh, I didn't a... see any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you... I mean, I, come, I do come from basically a kind of quite a sort of dark... A kind of unhappy background with a lot of you know childhood neglect and you know really did sort of drag myself up on the streets a lot of the time but it was just kind of by fluke or coincidence that I kind of had a load of kind of middle class influences as well and kind of got into art school and stuff but I mean when I read Tracy Emin's story about her childhood I was like oh yeah that sounds really that familiar. Thing, yeah. I was I was a street kid. I was, you know, out and about when I was too young and shouldn't have been, you know, around some of the adults that I came into contact with. And that was sort of really meaningful, I suppose. Well, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. The um, East London Stripper Collective, how can people see what they're doing, be it online or social media? Well, I mean, we've got a website, eastlondonstripperscollective.com, and we're on social media as Ethical Stripper, which is a, got, it's a bit confusing because that's the title of my book. Yeah. Um, I'm considering changing the handle, but we haven't really decided on what to call it yet. But also, Life Drawing with ELSC is the Instagram for our Life Drawing class. We've got Life Drawing every Monday in Shoreditch at the Crown and Shuttle and every other Monday at the Toulouse Le Trek in Kennington. Okay. So um, come along to Life Drawing if you're in London. We also do sporadic um, Life Drawing classes on Zoom as well. So for people who can't get to London, we do those as well. But just, um, yeah, follow us on Instagram and we have a sign up for our group on meetup.com. So we use Meetup for selling our tickets, but that's how, you know, when when we um, run our classes and we promote them, we send them to the people who've joined that group. And, you know, just Google us. You'll see a lot of press. There's a lot of articles out there about us. Um, buy my book, obviously. <laughs> the, Which is called, again? The Ethical Stripper, the ethical available stripper. at all of the usual major book outlets and um, and online and if anyone else wants to invite me onto their podcasts to promote my book I'd be more than happy to because I can't get anyone in mainstream media to take it seriously because it's uh, you're not allowed to be a sex worker and critique mainstream feminist ideology so thank you for your time Stacey. you're really I welcome really do appreciate it. yeah cheers thanks very much well hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast so we wasn't dictated to by advertisers, we decided from the offset to go ad-free, which means obviously we had to self-fund. So we set up the Ministry of Arts Patreon page. And without that support, we would not be able to produce this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you're able to support the podcast, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll find a Linktree drop-down box, which will direct you straight to our Patreon page. And for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep us growing week by week. But if you're not able to do that, 
that's fine because this content is free for everyone. But leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to your podcast, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Everything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, Zadar. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.